Today's lesson is to be found on page 1180, 1180, Philippians 3, beginning at verse 17. Join together. Sorry? Oh, it's from verse 1, is it? Oh, it's, I wondered about that. Okay, looked a bit odd. Okay, we'll start again. Philippians 3. No confidence in the flesh. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it, is who we are, it, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence." If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. Press on, I press onward, on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a, a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For 
as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny, destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with you, O dear, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's be to God. Good morning, let's pray. Through the written word and the spoken word, may we know your living word, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Good morning. So that's quite loud, isn't it? Good morning. For those who don't know um, me, my name is Matt, and for those who don't know me especially well, as a reminder for those who maybe do, at work I am what is called a a product manager is technically my title. Um, and what this means in practice is that I work alongside a team of very clever designers and engineers, people like Alex over there, um, who come up with lots of new and exciting products and technologies. Um, and my role is basically to determine whether or not what these engineers and designers have come up with is commercially viable for us, whether it's likely to be competitive in the market. Um, and whether or not it's basically going to be successful for my company. So I work at Dyson, um, and one of the most interesting projects that I've managed recently um, was what we called Project N223. We give projects codes so that no one guesses what they are. We're quite secretive like that. Um, project N223, you can Google it now, so it's not that secret. Um, it was our first robot vacuum cleaner. And the thing is, robot vacuums have been on the market now for well, quite a few years, mainly in places like America and Japan, who love that sort of thing. But now they're starting to make their way into the UK. Quick straw poll, Has anyone, does anyone own a robot vacuum cleaner? Yes, one person. <laughs> Amazing. Has anyone seen any robot vacuum cleaners anywhere else? Shops, John Lewis, Lakeland, Robert Dyers, I think, have them. The idea of a robot vacuum cleaner is it's brilliant. The concept is superb. This thing that automatically moves around your home. That concept has been going for well, quite a few years now. People can remember back to maybe the 60s and the 80s, a series by the, uh, the Jetsons TV series and Rosie the robot that would clean up. This thing that moves around 
your floor, it picks up really fine dust and it picks up really big bits of sort of debris and it puts them all into its onboard bin. So then when you get home from work at the end of the day, it's sat there charging on its little docking station before it goes out for another run. I'm not trying to turn this into a sales pitch, I'm really not. But our robot um, also has an app on my phone. So I can check in with my vacuum cleaner while I'm not in the house. I can sit at my desk and I can see how it's cleaned. I can see how far it's cleaned, what it's got left to do. It's really not a sales pitch. I say, I say it when I talk about this thing, because actually, we've affectionately called ours at home Alfred. Because Alfred is actually quite a good name for a, a butler. It's the Batman's butler, to be honest, isn't it? I empty Alfred's bin. I give him a little wipe occasionally. He is, he's a faithful servant in our home. He goes about his business without much interference from me. And the result is an easier, cleaner, trouble-free life. Don't get me wrong. I mean, Alfred does, has his, does have his moments. He's not brilliant uh, with baked beans. Give him, give him an open doorway like this one, and he'll be straight out there cleaning up the word outside. You see, in the end, Alfred is he's a realist. He's impersonal at that. I push a button on Alfred, and I get a response. I ask him to clean. He does it. Basically, if I learn the system, I get reports at the end. He is, in the end, quite heartless. There's no compassion there. He's not that warm to hug. The reason I mention robot vacuums and Alfred is that, in some ways, our understanding of God, our relationship with God, can at times feel a bit like a robotic theology. Think of it this way. God is the ultimate clean home. Church is our robot. The Bible is our instruction manual. Jesus is our 0800 call center. If I learn the system, I get the right response. It can be called computerized Christianity. The occasional wipe here, bin empty there, communion service today, Christmas service tomorrow, and bingo, I get a clean salvation. That is professional religion. We do our part, and the divine robot does his. He cleans up. No need to pray for action, because after all, I've got an app on my phone for that. No emotional attachment required. Worship, it's not necessary. It's a proven system. Follow the rituals and the instructions, and I see the results. Computerized Christianity. When we view God as a robot, and the follower as the app-controlling button pusher, that is automated religion. That's religion by computer, and God is not a fan of that. Now, over the next few minutes, let's say, we're going to read about a similar situation affecting the church in Philippi. We're going to look at the problem, we're going to look at Paul's response, and we're going to look at the implications on our lives. So, problem, Paul's response, implication on our lives. So, what is the problem? The gift of salvation and forgiveness being freely offered to those who believe is it's a big challenge, isn't it? Surely there's some payment plan or you know, direct debit or contactless payment for my sins. We thank God for his grace all the time, but isn't there something that I can do to pay off my debt that I owe him? And this way of thinking was around hundreds of years ago. In the early church, it was taught by a group of people, and I'm going to say their name differently every single time, uh, called Judaizers. Judaizers. 
The word comes from the Greek verb meaning to live according to Jewish customs. And their doctrine was a mixture of grace through Christ and works through keeping the law. So God's grace and human effort. And in our reading today, Paul warns against these Judaizers. These were people who insisted that the laws and the customs of their Bible, what we call the Old Testament, and the traditions handed down by Moses, which included things like circumcision, were strictly adhered to. For them to truly be right with God, circumcision and other rituals, attendance at church, their valuable history, or in my robot example, button pushing, all added up to being in their eyes necessary for salvation. They believe that by playing their part, by following the rules, they will, be from, they will be in favor with God and they will be saved. So let's look at Paul's response. How does Paul respond to this? If you have your Bibles open. Philippians is not the only reference to Judaizers in the writings of Paul. However, we can't be sure whether they were actually in Philippi or not, but likely not. So why is Paul writing about them in Philippians? We can understand from Paul's emphasis that they had a certain attractiveness to many. And Paul wanted to warn against their beliefs for those who are thinking about following them. So how does he do this? He does this by effectively playing them at their own game. And not only that, he beats them at it. So let's look at that now. Paul lists seven potential plays in this game of righteousness. They start in verse 5. So, play number one, circumcised on the eighth day. Meaning, literally, literally, Paul was circumcised eight days after being born, according to Jewish law. Play number two, people of Israel, through circumcision, Judaizers hoped to bring Gentiles into the privileges, privileges of belonging to God's ancient people, or Israel's race. And Paul had already, already been given this privilege by birth. So he was circumcised at the right time. He was born into the right place. And three, the tribe of Benjamin. One commentator wrote, this is almost certainly for effect. Paul could trace his family line to the tribe of Benjamin, a tribe from which came Saul, Israel's first king, a tribe blessed by Moses in Deuteronomy as the beloved of the Lord, and a tribe in whose territory sat the holy city itself. And these three things, circumcision, people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, all added up to Paul calling himself, fourthly, Hebrew of Hebrews. He is at the very top of that religious tree. We hear three more, though. The next three are slightly different. Fifth play, in regard to the law of Pharisee. In um, Galatians 1, 14, by Paul's own words, he had advanced in Judaism far beyond his contemporaries, being extremely zealous for the traditions of his ancestors. He was an absolute stickler for the law. But play number six, on top of this, Paul wasn't just an everyday run-of-the-mill Pharisee who knew his things. He dedicated his life to tirelessly stamping out the budding Christian movement. As he says in verse six, as for zeal, persecuting the church. So in a similar way, the Judaizers are also persecuting the church. Paul surpasses them, especially when he now considers the suffering that he endures in prison. So that's six. And to conclude the list, at seven, as for righteousness in the law, faultless. Which is an interesting conclusion where Paul basically says, by man's standards, by the law, I can't be bettered. So 
seven plays. The first four are birthrights, but the last three show some degree of personal achievement. Paul has worked hard for those things. And what does Paul do with this? Paul looks at his standing at the very top of religious society, the Pharisees. He looks at the glory that comes with it, all the admiration and the ovation and the applause. He looks at the rigor of his law-keeping and the sense of moral pride that he enjoyed. And he says in verse 7, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Paul says, I excelled in righteousness in the law, button pushing. And you know what? It's empty. It's meaningless. There's no future in it. In comparison to knowing Christ, it is quite literally rubbish or garbage. So Paul's response to the Judaizers is firstly one of dismissal. For those reading in Philippi, he tells them, forget your past, forget my past, forget works, forget deeds. It's worthless in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus. But he doesn't leave it there. He's out to show that if you truly know Christ, it is enough. So what does knowing Christ actually mean? Well, knowing Christ can refer to simply being redeemed by faith and being in the family of God. However, it can go beyond that to refer to a deeper, a richer, a more joyful closeness with him. So what does it mean for Paul in verse 10? He sums it up. He says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul's aim is to know Christ intimately. That is the aim of everything for Paul, to achieve this closeness, this intimate relationship with Christ. He sums it up in two phrases, knowing the present power of his resurrection and participating in his sufferings. Knowing the power of his resurrection, Paul wanted everything he could get of Christ. He wanted to be like Jesus. He wanted to live in utter obedience and humility to him. Paul desired to experience the same power that raised Christ from the dead, surging through his own being and overcoming sin in his own life. And sufferings? I read a great quote from um, a guy called Hudson Taylor, who's a missionary, that I thought works especially well in relation to this passage. He said... There are only two, uh, sorry, there are not two Christs. There's not an easygoing Christ for easygoing Christians and a suffering, toiling Christ for exceptional believers. There is only one Christ. And if our intent is to avoid pain and trouble, to avoid suffering, then Hudson Taylor would suggest we are following something or someone that isn't Christ. Living like Christ in his likeness, emulate, emulating his life, how can that not also include suffering? It has to. And Paul, he delighted in this. At the start of this passage today, we saw how Paul takes everything he once held so dear and turns it upside down. But isn't that just all words? Isn't it just words? It's like New Year's resolutions. I consider alcohol or TV or Jaffa cakes loss for the sake of Christ. Not, not quite. In the first half of our passage today, Paul is almost preparing for suffering. He's basically counting everything he values, everything he values, so that when Christ calls him to give up some of those things, it's not strange or it's not unexpected for him. 
and what happens with Paul in writing this letter from prison. Paul doesn't just prepare for future suffering. He experiences it daily. He lives it now. And in our passage today, he reminds us again and again the reason why he accepts those losses. In verse 7, he says, I counted them loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, I count all things to be loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Verse 8 again, for him I have suffered the loss of all things. Again in verse 8, and I count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In verse 9, that I may be found in him. And in verse 10, that I may know him. Paul, he's not passive in his suffering and the loss. He doesn't just endure suffering. He's, he's really purposeful in it. And his purpose, as he says in all these verses, is to gain Christ, to be found in Christ, to know Christ. In other words, what sustains Paul when he's lost everything he previously regarded as precious in the world is that he's gaining something much more precious. He is gaining Christ. So Paul shows us that our past and the righteousness of man, the righteousness of the flesh, is worthless when the ultimate goal is to gain a deeper relationship with Christ. A deeper relationship achieved by considering everything lost and suffering as Christ suffered. What does all this actually mean for us? It means, it means our salvation is guaranteed not by our own determination, but by God's love. But if we want an ultimate, intimate relationship with Christ who made it possible, we must be prepared to suffer like he did. I'll say that again. It means our salvation is guaranteed, not by our own determination, but by God's love. But if we want that intimate relationship with Christ, who made it all possible, we must be prepared to suffer like he did. I told you earlier about Alfred, our robot vacuum. I'm sure you haven't stopped thinking about him. He should be cleaning right now, in fact. Alfred is, he is the perfect product for our home. I think we both agree on that. Um, in fact, he is he actually is the perfect product for all of your homes. Um, and it's going a bit off topic now, but it's not often that I get 20 minutes or 30 minutes undisturbed speaking time, uninterrupted, Esther, um, speaking in front of such a lovely group of people. And in fact, it's probably a good time for me to tell you a bit more about Alfred. I'm fairly sure that's what you want, so good. Alfred comes with a two-year warranty. Uh, he has the best performance and suction of any robot on the market. He has, a, he has an A-grade filter at the back, so no dust comes back out of the machine. Uh, he has cyclones galore. He has carbon fiber on his, um, on his brush bar to pick up really fine dust. He comes in two colors. Uh, he cleans your home without any fuss. He's very easy to maintain. He's relatively quiet. Uh, you can leave him in your home while you're in or at work. And you know what? I'm not that different to the Judaizers of the time. They had, or at least thought they had, the perfect product. They sold it to people. They said, if you buy into circumcision, observing the Sabbath, food and drink restrictions, you will be better off. Your salvation is guaranteed. And in this passage today, Paul shows us this is just so incorrect. It's so not the case anymore. Jesus is the answer. As Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 21, he says, to me, the only important thing about living is Christ. 
and dying would be profit for me. Paul takes us right back to the beginning. He says, forget trying to earn God's approval. As, um, as Esther said in the first sermon in the series, our assurance is based on God's love, not human determination. So does this mean there's a place for complacency in the world? Our assurance is based on God's love. Job done. Robotic theology. Nay. It means the following. It means we strive to know Christ. We strive to truly know Christ. And it means three things. I'd like you to think about how they might affect your life and your choices today and into the future. Firstly, it means that whenever I am challenged to choose between anything of this world and Christ, I choose Christ. Whenever I am challenged to choose between anything of this world and Christ, I choose Christ. So how might that affect your use of time or money or commitments? Does Christ come first in all of these things? Secondly, it means that I will always deal with the things of this world in ways that show me show others that they are not my treasure, they are not my purpose and my motivation, but rather show that Christ is my treasure and my purpose and my motivation. Possessions, for example. As someone once said, if you own anything that you can't give away, you don't own it, it owns you. Thirdly, it means that if I lose any or all the things that this world can offer, be it a good reputation, perhaps, or friendships, or my good health, I will not lose my joy or my treasure or my life because Christ is all. And again, it means that if I lose any or all of the things that this world can offer me, I will not lose my joy or my treasure or my life because Christ is all. I'd like to finish with a parable. Do you remember the story of Jesus that Jesus told about the two men in Luke and he described the first man, a Pharisee, as praying with himself. It's interesting, this man, this proud man, proceeded to rattle off all his religious achievements. It was less of a, a prayer to God, it was more of a sort of self-congratulatory speech. And meanwhile, the other man, a dishonest tax collector, stood at a distance, broken, very much in touch with his own unworthiness. He humbly cried out to God for mercy, and how did heaven respond? Only the tax collector left the temple on right terms with God. In that short parable, we see the simple gospel. We are made right with God, not by our own efforts, but by simply relying on God's grace. For the grace of God surpasses all understanding. Let's strive to know him more. Amen.